Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbarnwell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Well, good day to you all and welcome as you listen to this studio broadcast of our current emphasis in our teaching on kingdom economics. And this is part of the overall treatment of the grace of God. And what we're doing in the segment is trying to find the biblical correlation between financial giving and the grace of God. This is a studio recording because our live recording of this particular segment uh, did not come out too clearly. So I've elected just to do a brief recording um, of some of the vital principles in the next session uh, in our treatment of this topic. We have been discussing up to now how that whenever we give, our giving is always prompted by the grace of God. That grace being within us the nature of God in its essence, the compositional nature of God as a spirit being is His grace. When that resides within us, and biblically we are required to grow in it, and in a sense to come into fullness progressively into our experience of the totality of all that the grace of God represents. What you will discover is as you grow in grace, so will you grow in benevolent, generous, extravagant giving. Everything about grace beckons in and of itself to give out from itself to others. Uh, giving, I believe, is one of the first administrations of grace. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. So the giving out of from God as a graceful being is a demonstration of the fact that he too is full of grace. Even of the Lord Jesus, it says in John 1 that of his fullness do we receive grace upon grace. If any person, including God, is full of grace, uh, it will be demonstrated by an outgiving from that realm to another. So for us, when we deal financially, or when we consider financial giving, all giving, not just financially, any expression of sacrificial giving out from myself um, to another, not just in terms of money, but in terms of time, uh, talent, skill, help, assistance of any kind, must always exude or from the position of grace within me. That position of grace within me is not entirely dependent upon my human capacity. The nature of grace is such that um, it does not depend on human effort. Uh, human effort did not save us in the first place. We are saved by grace. So even in our initial encounter with salvation, it's grace that saved us, not our own effort. But now having been saved and coming into the kingdom, the Bible says that we are ordained for good works. Good works could not earn salvation, but once saved, 
we are to observe them and even our capacity to do good works like uh, Matthew 5 would say that let your good works be seen before men that they might glorify your father which is in heaven those good works that we do as a result that we are saved now are acts of obedience by which we please God in our bid to obey all his principles in his word and every time we do that, every time we do a good work, a good work is nothing more than an act of obedience in reference to clearly laid out principles in God's word. Every time we, we obey, we position ourselves for entrance into greater grace. And I've taught in the past, even that capacity obey, to, to obey God in a bid to please him, in itself is as a result of grace that empowers us even to obey. For left to ourselves, there's nothing good within ourselves or nothing that we can lay too great a store by to um, lay claim to any ability to obey God in any respect. But what I did teach in my prior broadcast was that when God lays an expectation upon you, there must be an inclination within the heart to please Him. When that is so, grace kicks in to empower you to obey the requirement of the Lord. And we saw this in the life of the Lord Jesus, where it says He tasted death by the grace of God in the book of Hebrews. Tasting death by grace was the experience of the Lord Jesus. Philippians says He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So tasting death for him would be an expression of obedience. He was able to obey his father and even go through the costly obedience of the cross simply because he was empowered by the grace of God to obey his father. But grace does not make you irresponsible and unaccountable. There was initially a momentary uh, thought within Christ in the garden to let the cup of the suffering of the cross passed by him but he quickly adjusts to demonstrate a proclivity or an inclination a desire within him to do his father's will when he said not my will but your will be done and i believe the moment those those desires within us manifest god does give the requisite grace an empowerment for us to obey him and in this regard i said we have to tap into the view of grace as god's empowerment grace is god's enablement it's god's empowerment for us to please god and to obey him it's the power that drives our functionality in life it's a power that drives our obedience to all of god's requirements just as a reminder philippians 2 12 and 13 says that we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So we must work out our salvation, for it is God who is working. We can only work for God is working. So grace does not make us lazy, nor does grace make us irresponsible. In the language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, down about verse 9 and 10, he says that uh, he worked 
harder than all the apostles. But he quickly qualifies that work when he says, I worked, yet not I. Notice, I worked, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I said grace does not make you lazy. For the apostle says, I work. He worked because of grace. He did not work apart from grace. So when we are the recipients of grace, grace drives our efforts. Grace pushes our our attempts to please God. It's not our attempts. We work, but it's really God working in us so that all that we do is really by the grace of God. So then, having now to apply all of these concepts to financial giving, every attempt that I make to please God financially will be because of His grace. I must at least incline my heart to do it and to please Him and to bring my whole life in compliance with all of His financial principles. And when that is the case, the very nature of grace that beckons to give out from itself will will be thoroughly manifest within my being and I'm able to give money or goods and services to others. I'm able to give because of the reservoir and the power of the grace of God that is present um, within me. I looked at several examples from our last segment and just quickly wish to rehearse them without going into the detail and then move on to perhaps one or two more examples. The greatest example of giving in terms of its correlation to the grace of God and how it issues forth from the grace of God, I think is the Macedonian church in 2 Corinthians 8, where Paul says they gave uh, from deep poverty and they gave according to their ability and beyond their ability. How does one give beyond your ability? How does one give beyond your capacity? How does one give beyond what you are able to give? Notice what you are able. The nature of grace is such that it always causes the recipient of grace to function above what is humanly possible. It it takes potential above human limitation. And so Paul, when he said this about them, he opens his call to the Corinthian church to whom he's writing using the Macedonians as a case study to activate them to a place of greater giving, he says this in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. Notice all of the giving capacity that the Macedonian churches uh, demonstrated, giving way beyond capacity giving liberally and lavishly from a condition of deep poverty, was nothing more in Paul's mind than the grace of God at work. He says, I want you to make known to, or to make known to you the grace of God given to these churches. So he has a very clear example how that when a church taps into resident grace to give out from a grace position and not a work-centered position. Notice these Macedonians were very poor. So their natural conditions did not determine the level of their giving. Grace did. Grace did. And I want to encourage those of you who are listening to this broadcast to really be conscious of the grace of God in you and to give out from that dimension. Secondly, to grow in this grace. 
the more you grow in this grace, the easier it would be to give. In our last, my last few broadcasts, I, I taught this principle, how that impartations of grace happen most profoundly when you, as a, a, as a son of God or when whole churches collectively, have accurate connections to authentic apostles to whom God has invested unusual and profound quantums of His grace meant to be imparted or dispensed to us. And I would encourage you to, to consult my last uh, focus in the series on grace called Impartations of Grace, available on my website. I will also encourage the listener to, to listen to Grace as a theme on my website. There are multiple sessions there. But there I demonstrate this, that grace saved you and you're called into the kingdom. Once in the kingdom, grace is a spatial sphere of existence in which you live. It's an economy. Romans 1 clearly teaches, 5 and 6, that you are called into this grace in which you stand. You're in the kingdom, but the, the, the atmosphere of you, the environment of the kingdom is one of grace where you are saturated with the nature of God, not just internally, but it's almost an environment externally in which you live. In, in Him we live, in Him we move, and in Him do we have our being. So then, having been in this kingdom, I'm to grow progressively into this dimension of grace. And in my series, I set forth various attitudes and behavioral patterns, both attitudes and actions, we as sons of God could adopt in our lives attitudes and actions which will enhance, if you would, or facilitate our progressive growth into the grace of God. For example, dispositions like humility would facilitate our growth in grace. Because the scripture says he gives grace to the humble, but he will oppose the proud. Um, another one in terms of actions would be Active submission to spiritual fathering. And I, I, I spent a great deal of time demonstrating from the scriptures that any person who was submitted to an authentic apostolic fathering grace would grow in grace significantly. So the real issue is grace. The real issue when you consider giving is grace. The real issue when you consider kingdom economics is what level of grace is present. So the absence, for example, of financial giving, for me, is symptomatic of a grace deficiency. On the other hand, lavish giving evidences grace sufficiency. The graceful man gives generously. The man that is in need of more grace or is deficient in grace doesn't grow in grace, will find it very difficult to give, or is not aware of the grace content or the grace dynamic from which he would give, would often fail to give as God would expect him to give. So the Macedonian churches, here's a key. The great grace upon them that caused them to give according to their ability and even beyond their ability was in part because of the degree to which they aligned themselves to and connected to Paul as an apostle full of grace, 
grace given to him designed to flow to them. And uh, Paul would demonstrate this connection, this intimate connection this church had with them when he said that they, before they gave financially or gave materially, he said this, that they were first given to the Lord and then to us. They were not just given to the Lord. They were given to Paul uh, in intimacy. Their hearts were given. The giving of the heart in that context demonstrates the degree to which they were connected. And this degree of intimate connection would facilitate a huge grace download or flow to them. So I want to encourage you um, to really consider the degree of your connectedness to authentic apostolic grace. Uh, connections to your spiritual father who is an apostle or if he's not an apostle you must in some way at least be connected to an authentic apostle so that this reservoir of grace could find its way to you the second example we drew upon was how that the, our Lord Jesus Christ was full of grace according to John chapter 1 from verse 14 onwards up to verse 18 describes how he was full of grace. And this grace caused him to die. This grace caused him to give his life. This grace of God in him caused him to give the greatest gift known to the earth. He offered his life as a willing sacrifice. The giving of Christ was the greatest expression of any giving ever. In fact, Paul uh, uh, spends 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in reference to um, how we should give financially. And he makes this statement right at the end of chapter 9. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. The giving of Christ and the offering of his life on the cross for the sins of humanity is called an unspeakable gift. The word unspeakable there in the Greek uh, literally means ineffable. In other words, indescribable or unable to be uttered. It's a, gift that, it's a gift which basically leaves us speechless. And that capacity of giving, imagine giving a gift to someone that leaves them speechless, leaves them unable to describe what is given. Now, that kind of giving can only come from a, a grace position. That only giving can only exude from uh, a grace that loves and beckons to give. And Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Notice, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. He was rich, for our sakes he became poor. What caused him to impoverish himself, to enrich others, was grace. And I said this to you in the past. Grace knows how to impoverish itself, to enrich others. Grace knows how to make sacrifices for the benefit of another. Grace knows how to inconvenience itself, to convenience others. And I said this to you, the claim to grace that does not know how to do this, does not know how to inconvenience itself for the convenience of another, is not true grace at all. So even our Lord Jesus was able to give his life from a grace position. Again, I want to encourage you, your giving will grow as your grace, as your growth in grace 
uh, is facilitated. And I, I mentioned this in a prior broadcast as well. The Corinthians excelled in many of the spiritual gifts. In fact, they were at the forefront of this and they came second to none um, in respect of other churches. They excelled in the operation of all the gifts of the Spirit, all nine gifts. But they lacked love and they lacked generosity in giving. So Paul, when he would end the letter, would end it like this to them. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, he would say, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. Two things they lacked, grace and love. Remember, he would spend the whole of 1 Corinthians 13 speaking about love. He would spend um, the whole of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 on financial giving. He spent two chapters on financial giving, one chapter on love. And he concludes his second letter by saying this to them, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, implying God the Father, be with you. And the, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. What is this grace of the Lord Jesus he's talking about? Well, he described it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, when he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, though he was rich, for your sakes became poor. So what is he saying? That grace, that capacity, that knows how to give out from itself, that dimension be with you. And then obviously he would also say, the love of God the Father be with you. And all this happens through communion with the Holy Spirit. A third example we looked at about how grace gives was the example of the lad who gave five loaves and two fish to Andrew, who would give it to Jesus to multiply and ultimately feed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. Five is representative of grace. Five loaves, bread, is representative of the Word of God. The grace of God is communicated in and through the Word of God. Again, this is symbolic or prophetic of how this boy was able to release his substance. And five loaves are depictive of grace. So it's almost like he gave out from a grace position and what he gave is grace. I believe that when money is released, grace too is released. Notice there were 5,000 people and even when Jesus uh, asked the disciples to feed him, and it was, I think, Andrew or Philip, rather, who said that um, 200 denarii of bread is not sufficient for them. This is John 6, verse 7 and 8. Right? 200 denarii is not enough to feed 5,000 people, even if Everyone has a little, Philip said. But Andrew, one of the disciples, said that there's a lad here who has five barley loaves, two fish. Notice what 200 denarii, 200 denarii was um, a suggestion of Philip. Uh, the word Philip means uh, horses or something to do with horses. Horses in, in a particular respect denotes uh, human capacity. The scripture says some trust in horses, some in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. So the Philip dimension leans to a reliance on the flesh, 200 denarii, uh, and its literal incapacity to alleviate or fulfill the need of feeding 5,000 people. Impossible. 
So what the flesh, what natural capacity could not do, grace did. From a position of grace, when offered to the Lord, um, it was able to feed 5,000 people. 5,000 people. So from a grace position, a lad was willing to give up his limited resources to Jesus, full of grace. And what he gave to Christ, full of grace, exponentially multiplied to feed a company of 5,000. When we, full of grace, give from a position of grace, not reliant upon uh, human capacity or human endeavor, we give to God in terms of to God's servants or to God's sons or to other people. But symbolically, we are really giving it to the Lord who is full of grace. When we give from grace to one full of grace, what we give in the hands of one full of grace is able to exponentially multiply and meet a host of needs. A fourth example of this dynamic was how Abraham gave Isaac was willing to give Isaac at the requirement of the Lord as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Remember that Abraham was Abram before he was Abraham. His name Abram or Abram means exalted father or high father. But the name Abraham means father of a nation or father of multitudes, father of nations or father of a multitude. And I said this to you in the past, that the name change from Abram to Abraham in the Hebrew simply requires an insertion of the fifth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's the letter He into the name. The number five is symbolic of grace. So the name change from Abram to Abraham prophetically represents an insertion of new grace into Abram. Now notice... He was promised a son. There was the impossibility of bearing that son because both he and his wife were past the age of childbearing. Abraham could not produce Isaac. Abram could only produce Ishmael. Remember through impatience um, of, of his wife, Sarai. Uh, this was before her name was changed to Sarah. Sarai suggested that Abraham sleeps with Hagar. Hagar, a part of the meaning of Hagar means trap or snare. So the suggestion of Abram, not Abram, of Abram to sleep with Sarai's maidservant Hagar was a trap of the enemy. They produced Ishmael, who was not the son of promise that God promised him. So Abraham is functioning here with, not from a grace position. He's reliant upon human effort to bring the prophecy to pass, to bring the will of God to pass. And what he produces was a flesh result, not a grace result. It's only in Genesis 17 where Abraham's name is changed from Abram to Abraham. And as Abraham, together with Sarah's name changed from Sarai, to Sarah. Sarah means contention or strife. Sarah means chieftainess or woman of nobility. You see, although Abraham's name was changed to Abraham, denoting a new level of grace, 
His wife's name also had to be changed from strife to nobility. A womb of contention and strife could not receive a seed from grace from Abraham and generate an Isaac or a God result. The womb had to be changed to one of great nobility with free from contention, free from human striving and strife and argument and division that had to be done. The womb was now ready. Abraham is now full of grace and from a grace position Isaac is born. As Abram he produced Ishmael. As Abraham he produced Isaac. As Abram he relied on works of the flesh in a womb of strife to produce and Ishmael, and hence Ishmael, even today, full of strife. But as Abraham produced, from a grace position, produced Isaac, whom himself is a representation of grace, because the word Isaac means laughter. And James Strong said that one of the outcomes of grace is that it's that dynamic which, when the recipient receives it, brings great joy to the recipient. So, Isaac is the symbol of great joy and laughter and is a symbolic representation of the grace of God. Abram was able to offer Isaac because he was full of grace. God did not ask him to give Isaac as Abram. God asked him to offer Isaac as Abraham because there was a grace dynamic within Abram that would have consistent, would have willingly gave the boy up as he demonstrated. But Abraham's obedience to give something so costly as Isaac up, he could only come to that position because from the time God called him in Genesis 12, he consistently, repetitively obeyed God step by step by step. Um, right from Genesis 12, where God called him, called him and said that you will bless him, um, to Genesis 13, where he was not... Um, willing to be embroiled in tensions and strife with his nephew Lot. In Genesis 14, he, was, he willingly demonstrated that he, there too he was, he, he was able to give his life, literally, in the rescue of Lot who left him. Abraham demonstrated when he rescued Lot that he was willing even to sacrifice his life in the rescue of a brother. He apprised brotherly love so highly that he was willing to give his life in the rescue of Lot. In that we see within Abraham, there's already a disposition within him of grace to, to give out for the benefit of another. When he came back after the defeat of the kings, having rescued Lot with the booty and the spoil of nine kings, that's the four Persian kings he conquered, and, and getting the, the spoil of the five kings they originally conquered, he came back an extremely wealthy man. There again he offered, he demonstrates his willingness to give by how he honored Melchizedek, who was his spiritual father, and there he gave a tithe of all. He also gave, the scripture says in Genesis 14, a share of those goods to all the 318 men that were with him. And he gave a share to 
three brothers, Aina, Eskal, and Mamre, who supported him in the rescue attempt of Lot. Again, we see the disposition in Abram as a giver, constantly gives. You know, I believe in reference to Melchizedek, who is representative of an apostolic fathering grace over his life, Abraham honored him financially. And I believe um, the capacity of God in Abraham, the power that God gave Abraham even to rescue Lot, even in Melchizedek's words, Melchizedek, when he blessed him, having serving bread and wine to him, said, the Lord God has given you victory over your enemies. I believe all that was so, simply because that Abraham honored Melchizedek, not just in that incident in Genesis 14. I believe that wasn't the only engagement of Melchizedek with Abram, but I believe Melchizedek would have had a constant relationship with Abram. So Abram had a Melchizedek in his life. Abram had a spiritual father in his life. Again, like the Macedonians had the Apostle Paul and their hearts were given to uh, to the apostles such that great grace was upon them. I believe in this instance too. Abraham is this graceful man because grace of God flowed in to him in and through the Melchizedek principle, the spiritual father principle that was in within Abraham's life to the Lord. Again in Genesis 15 we see Abraham offering sacrifices to the Lord. In Genesis 18 he never allows three guests angelic visitors to leave his home without being hospitable to them furnishing them with the best food and drink abraham is a giver in genesis 19 he intercedes for god's intent to destroy sodom and gomorrah he intercedes to god to be gracious to the people there he's a giver genesis 20 he lies that sarah is his brother is his sister and he said his brother because he was afraid the king Abimelech will kill him having his eye on Sarah again this is a negative example because even yeah he was willing to give up his wife to protect his own life and this is a negative in Abraham because and yeah I want to encourage you you never give out of fear yeah fear prompted his giving willing to sacrifice his wife in misrepresentation of the kind of relationship um, he had with her. He was really her half-brother, so he was, not, he was not completely telling a lie, but it was a very convenient misrepresentation of the absolute truth. The absolute truth was, I am her husband, but when it's convenient, I will use my relationship with her as brother to protect myself and so give her away. And you know how the Lord intervened in this and warned Abimelech in a dream not to touch Sarah. And here I want to caution us that we must always function from love and grace within us when we give. And love within us, the Bible says, casts out all fear. So we never give out of fear, out of coercion, out of manipulation in a bid to um, foster our own welfare or self-preservation um, that is not uh, biblical so i want to encourage us not to give out of fear but nevertheless abram is a giver in, in, in genesis 21 isaac is born hagar is removed from the house again abram releases 
Hagar and Ishmael. Because they would have opposed what God was doing in and through Isaac in the realm of spirit. In Genesis 22, he offers Isaac. You see, he never offers Isaac in a vacuum. He offers Isaac after displaying a consistent pattern of obedience in respect to giving. Now I want to encourage you, the more you consistently obey God in the matter of giving in small matters, when God asks you to give up the big thing, there will be great willingness and ease to do it. I want to encourage you, when you function by grace, grace makes giving effortless, easy, and inevitable. Effortless, easy, and inevitable. Abraham now becomes the embodiment of grace. And when you become the embodiment of grace, as Jesus was full of grace, as Stephen in Acts 6, 8 in the NASB says, a man full of grace. When you and I become full of grace, we become the embodiment of grace. And when you become the embodiment of grace, to express grace so as to communicate it will be easy, effortless, and inevitable. Another thought I would like you to consider is this. When Abraham gave Isaac as an offering, it was symptomatic of a first fruit offering. It was the only son he had from heaven's perspective. Although he had two sons, Isaac was born, sorry, Ishmael was born first. But heaven did not regard Ishmael as a son. For when God commanded Isaac to be offered by Abraham, God said this to Abraham, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, and offer him. So when we give up the first fruit of the product of the will of God coming to pass in our lives, remember Abraham would be the father of nations, the father of multitudes. So Isaac is the first in that order from in Abraham's world. And what he does, he's willing to give that up to the Lord. It's, it's symptomatic of a first fruit offering. First fruit teaching is a very powerful display of how we give. And later on in the series, I will give thorough explanation to it. But if he could not tithe to Melchizedek in Genesis 14, he would not offer the first fruit of Isaac in Genesis 22. The tithe taught him consistent faithful obedience, such that when God called for the first fruit, he would be willing and obeyed effortlessly. I think in the wisdom of God, God has restored first fruits to the church in time uh, after it has been lost, at least in our generation. It's been lost to the church for ages, and of recent times, God has restored it, but He has restored it after people have been obeying the practice of tithes and offerings. And I want to encourage us, God has set this up so, although in Scripture, although, having said that, I believe as a reality, I need to say this, in Scripture, a first fruit offering is the first example of any kind of offering, even before the tithe. The first mention of first fruit is, is Genesis 4, when Abel offered his firstlings to God. And the first mention of the tithe is Genesis 14. 
So Abraham was faithful with little, and he proved faithful with much. Luke 16.10 says, He who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. You will do with much exactly what you have done with a little. Many people in deception think that when they have a little, they do not need to be faithful financially. For example, in Titan offerings. And that only one day, when they, when they come into the abundance and breakthrough, they will then start to be obedient financially and faithful financially. This is deception because if you're faithful in little, you will also be faithful in much. What you do with a little, you will also do with much. In fact, God tests your faithfulness with a little before he will entrust you with faithfulness in much. The scripture teaches that the tithe is the Lord's. So if God, if you cannot trust God with his own money, God cannot entrust you with more of your own money. If you cannot prove faithful with that which is another man's, the Bible says, God will not give you your own. The tithe is another man's, it's God's. Be faithful there. But again, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you, don't observe and look at these principles from the standpoint of your human capacity. Harness and access grace that is able to propel your obedience in reference to these things. Abraham is often hailed as a blessed man. For in Genesis 12, God promised that in blessing he will that, that he will be sorry, he will bless him, make him a great nation wherever blesses him. God will bless. He's promised that he will be blessed in Genesis 12. But in Genesis 22, when he demonstrates his willingness to offer Isaac, God said this to him, Now I know what's in your heart. And see, indeed, I swear by myself, in blessing, I will bless you. When, when we consider a blessed position, particularly, um, I know it's not always wise to consider this blessed position from a material perspective but there's ample evidence in scripture that Abraham was both spiritually and materially blessed whenever people view blessedness from a, a perspective of materiality they would often um, reference the degree to which they've received things from God but Acts 20 35 says it's more blessed to give than to receive. I want to challenge you whenever you reference your blessed estate or blessed position from a material perspective, reference how you've given and not how you've received. If Abraham is blessed and you asked him, Abraham, are you blessed? He would say yes. You would ask him why. He said because of my spiritual inheritance that I have in God. In that I'm going to produce a son, Isaac, which down the line would ultimately produce the Christ. The Bible says Christ is the true seed of Abraham. That is his blessed estate from which many other sons would come globally. As many as the sands of the sea as the stars. In the, that is Abraham's true heritage. But secondarily he would say, yes the Lord God has blessed me. But I don't reckon at a lower level my blessed estate by how see how God has blessed me. 
and what things I've accrued unto myself, I would reference my blessed estate in how I've given out. For it's more blessed to give than to receive. If Abraham is blessed, he would define his blessed estate by how he has given and not by how he has received. He would reference the more blessed position all because of grace. And I would challenge you with the same. Whenever you reference or you think about how blessed you are, reference how you gave and not how you've received. Remember when he came back from the war with the kings and he defeated Chedeloma and all his allies and he came back a multi-billionaire in his day, literally, the spoil of nine kings. Abraham gave it all away. He did not just tie to Melchizedek. He gave a share to the 318, the Bible says, what they ate. He gave a share to Ana, Eskol, and Mamre, three brothers who helped him. And he gave the rest to the kings, including the king of Sodom. And he said this to the king of Sodom, it will never be said. He said to him, I will not even as much take a shoelace from you. It will never be said, the king of Sodom made Abraham rich. This is uncanny. This is a man who is thoroughly dependent and reliant on God, his father. And I want to encourage you the same. When you know God as your father, it's easy to give. When his grace is present within you, you will give lavishly and generously because grace in you beckons to give. Isaac himself, another example, is a true example of how grace gives. He was willing to lay down his life. His father did not force him. He, he laid his life down when his father was intent to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. His name means laughter. And like I've said, joy and laughter are essential characteristics of the grace of God. Uh, abundance of joy was on the Macedonian church. Also, Paul would reference when he referenced the grace of God on them. He said, from deep poverty they gave. But he also said, from great ordeal of affliction, they exuded a great joy. There's something in the grace of God that manifests great joy in the context of great trial. James Strong also says that joy, when it comes to the recipient, sorry, grace, when it comes to the recipient, causes great joy. We can only be joyful in life because of the grace of God. And within the context of suffering, there's a whole bunch of scriptures that reference how that uh, grace is meted out to the one who suffers in righteousness for God's sake. And so I want to encourage you, Isaac who means laughter is a representation of this grace. The Macedonians had Paul as an apostolic oversight that poured grace into them from God. Abraham had Melchizedek. Abraham was full of grace because of his relationship with Melchizedek. Jesus was full of grace because of his, of his relationship to Mary and Joseph as spiritual representations over his life to whom he submitted. They were representations of God the Father, ultimately the source of grace flowing from God the Father to them through and to his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Isaac was full of grace as an expression of laughter because of his submission to his father, Abraham. Isaac is able to give his life because 
Ye is the product of, not Abram, he is the product of Abraham, a father full of grace that causes a manifestation of laughter and joy in his life such that in the context of trial and obviously having to die must be and offer your life must be the greatest trial ever. But a man full of grace offers his life from grace. Do you know that when Abraham saw the revelation of God as Jehovah Jireh because of that whole incident, that Isaac saw that revelation too. It was not just Abraham's revelation of God as a provider. It was Isaac's revelation of God. No person who gives from a grace position sacrificially will not know a powerful revelation of God as provider in his life. This revelation to Isaac was so profound that in his lifetime, Isaac never had a provision problem. And this is evidenced by two accounts. Number one, the Bible says in Genesis 26, 12, Isaac sowed in that land in a time of famine. And in the same year, he reaped a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him. He sows in famine in a context in which he, could, he should not sow by natural reasoning. A, a farmer does not sow in famine because that will waste seed. But you see, Isaac sowed his life as a seed when he was willing to obey his father's intent to sacrifice him. So he has already become the embodiment of a life sown so that when he takes now seed to sow, the ground respects him. Nature responds. Even though nature is not prepared for it, it's famine, but nature responds because he himself is already given as a seed. So when the seed you sow is representative of you as a seed or as one who is completely given over in sacrifice to God and His purposes. Anything you sow will generate a harvest, even in the most hostile and, contra and contrary of circumstances. God's blessing of the Lord will be upon you. Bible says in the same year, He doesn't just only reap, He reaps the maximum yield possible. You know that agricultural fields in that time were measured in the capacity to heal by foals, uh, 30, 60, and 100. But Isaac reaps the absolute maximum. The second example of how that provision flowed in his life was he would dig wells and wherever well he dug flowed with water. Philistines would uh, contest the wells that he dug. He would not contest and contest the wells and claim ownership. He would just move on, knowing that I can freely give it up. Notice again, I believe his giving up of the wells denotes also his capacity to walk away from that which is truly his because of the grace position within his life. He would just move on and dig another well. And the Bible says, wherever he dug, water flowed. He would dig wells and water flowed. I, I would suggest the same could be true of you and I, that if we function from a grace position, Whenever um, we, we engage added conditions or needs, the grace of God within us would be able to cause us to sow in times of famine, dig wells in the most hostile and driest of conditions, and we would generate a provision from God, from His hand, 
all by His grace. Another example in, in, this, in this series concerning how grace gives would be Ruth the Moabitess. Without going into the detail of the story here, the Bible references this phrase, Ruth the Moabitess, five times. You would see it in four chapters in the book of Ruth, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess. Moab means what father, or it's a term denoting um, one who discounts the need for spiritual fathering. In that context, Elimelech, a father dies, Marlon and Kilion, sons die. Moab is a context that kills both father and sons. It's also a barren context for both Orpah and Ruth, who are the wives of Marlon and Kilion, Elimelech and Naomi's sons. They could not bear kids for 10 years, 10 years all the while they were living in Moab. So when Naomi returns back to the land of Bethlehem in Judah, Ruth would return with her and Orpah stays in Moab and its gods. The Bible says she returned to Moab and its gods. So it's not just a return to a land, it's a spiritual decision. It's a return to a spiritual environment and a spiritual way of living. The, the God that the Moabites served was an evil deity called Chemosh. And Chemosh, amongst many things, means one who destroys. In fact, the Moabites, in the worship of their God, Chemosh, they would sacrifice sons in the process. Now, Orpah, who, whose name means stiff-necked, denoting rebellion and disobedience, goes back to that context. Ruth, on the other hand, clung to Naomi, followed her back to Bethlehem in Judah. You know the story. When she would get there, she would ultimately marry Boaz, all by Naomi's advice and instructions and guidance. She ultimately marries Boaz, who was a representation of Christ in the narrative. And she ultimately bears a son. Obed would become the father of Jesse, would become the father of King David. So, um, from a land of barrenness in Moab for 10 years, she now comes into great fertility. Great fertility. Why? Amongst many reasons. It was because of a relationship with Naomi. This is not simply a relationship between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Because in Ruth 4.15, Ruth, that the Bible references Ruth as better than seven sons. So Ruth is cast in the role of son, thus making Naomi a father, spiritual father. Naomi's role in the book of Ruth is symbolically, prophetically representative of how spiritual fathers guide spiritual sons into intimacy with Boaz, who is a representation of Christ. And that relationship produces something powerful in the earth that can affect the, the course of history of humanity forever. Because, you know, uh, she produces... Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of King David, from whose line the Messiah would come and ultimately the church of, the, of God would be born in the earth. But how, how could Ruth come to this position? Well, again, her relationship with her oversight, her spiritual father, Naomi. The Macedonians had the apostle Paul. Jesus had Mary and Joseph. I, Abraham had Melchizedek. I used to get Abraham as a spiritual father. 
Ruth had Naomi. All of these individuals display a capacity to give at such remarkable levels because of the grace of God that was pregnant within them by virtue of their commitment to, their joining to, um, the grace of God vested in spiritual fathers that God has placed in their lives. The meaning of Naomi is good, pleasant, and agreeable. But the root meaning of Naomi is grace. So she's only good, pleasant, and agreeable. These are all uh, expressions of grace. Because at the bedrock of her, she is, a, she is a, a woman. Naomi is a woman full of the grace of God. So a relationship with her son, Ruth, would be the dispensing of that grace to her. The meaning of Ruth is one worth seeing. Um, Ruth is one worth seeing because she will eventually become the embodiment of grace. Excuse me. <clears throat> By virtue of her, of her relationship obediently with every single one of Naomi's instructions. You would know that she would consistently gather in the field um, what, the lay, what, what, what the reapers would leave behind in the first in the corners of the field. Uh, and then in the center of the field, then after the reapers, she would bring back daily produce and minister a substance to Naomi, her spiritual father. And so she was a giver at heart. And ultimately she would marry Boaz um, and then from this position uh, produce Obed, a son. And you know what? She was willing to offer the son. The son she produced, Obed, was taken and placed on the lap of Naomi. And the woman even say, today a son has been born to Naomi, not to Ruth. Ruth was willing to give up that which was born to her. Only grace can do that. The son would be reckoned to Naomi and not to Ruth. What the son produced, the son was able to give up. What grace produces, grace can freely give up because grace will not lay ownership and claim to it. Because grace knows that the flesh could not have produced that. It's pure grace. So what grace produces, grace is able to release. What the works of the flesh produce, it's difficult to release because the works of the flesh would always regard what the flesh produced as its own. You will see this later on in my next example when Hannah is able to give up Samuel. What grace produces, grace is able to give away. What grace generates, grace can freely, freely give away. I want to encourage you with Hannah's example. Hannah was barren too, like Sarah was, like Ruth was initially. But Hannah is the embodiment of grace because her name means grace. The name Hannah means gratuitous gift, grace, mercy, gracious, graciousness, favor. She was gracious. But she was barren. And you can read the account in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And she weeps. Um, and Eli the priest notices her weeping and her, her beckoning and her passionate plea in distress to God. And she makes this vow to the Lord in 
Verse 11 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but, but give your maidservant a son, I will give to the Lord, give him to the Lord all the days of his life. Now, why does a woman request a son simply to give him back? I believe she might have not have been fully cognizant of this reality, but I believe deep within it there was the work of God um, in Hannah. She requests a capacity to bear a son, simply to give the son back. In the time in which she was living, um, this was after the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is sandwiched between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. Ruth requests, or rather would give birth to Obed, would ultimately would give birth to David, who was Israel's greatest king, naturally speaking. All kings need a prophet to anoint them. The boy Samuel that Hannah would produce would be the prophet that would anoint the offspring of Obed, the boy that Ruth produced. It's pointless having a king without a prophet to anoint in their context for functionality. Please remember this. The book of Judges ends with this lament. There was no king. There was no king, no order, no, no regimen, no protocol, no observance of divine order. And everyone did what was right in his own sight. The emergence of the monarchy would be inaugurated by Samuel, the boy that Hannah would produce. Samuel would anoint Saul, the first king, and then second, uh, Israel's best king, embodied in the person of, of King David. So what... What Hannah is praying for is, God, give me a boy, Samuel, that is able to set inauguration and set, initiate the start of a process of kings that can bring the nation to order, would, would take them out of lawlessness and disorder and bring godly government back to the nation. And perhaps she did not know what she was giving when she said, Lord, I will give him back. Give him to me so I can give him back to your purposes. And I want to encourage you, you and I sometimes might not be fully aware that sometimes when we give our best and we give the most costliest things, we perhaps are not fully aware of the impact of our gifts and what it means to God's overall overarching purposes purposes in the in the earth and within his kingdom when the woman that gave that expensive nod 11 months worth of wages she broke her uh, a jar and she poured it on the lord jesus he said uh, leave her alone because she's actually preparing my body for burial financial gifts prepare well her nod her giving prepared the literal body of christ for the cross which represents the apex of the fulfillment of his destiny. I believe our giving today prepare the body of Christ, the church, uh, as we push it to finality in terms of his purposes. And I want to encourage you, little did 
Abraham know that the giving of Isaac is a prophetic pattern, is a prophetic pattern of how God the Father would one day actually give his precious son, the Lord Jesus. And I believe the more your giving is born out of a revelation of its prophetic weight and significance and what it symbolizes as a pattern even for future generations, the vital role it plays in facilitating God's purposes, the greater the liberty you and I will have when we give. And just in considering how Hannah operated, she gave birth to, in giving a son, she gave birth to a prophetic dimension in Israel. The Bible says, literally, by implication, that Samuel was probably one of the greatest prophets, I think, after Moses. The Bible says that no, uh, God let none of his words fall to the ground. Uh, please bear in mind, he was also born in a time where the Bible says there was a backslidden priesthood, and, and through his anointing of David eventually, he would inaugurate a new priesthood after God's own heart. And in that same era, the Bible says the word of the Lord was rare. It was absent. But Samuel represents one that would, would, as a prophet, would access the word of the Lord and bring it back to Israel. But all of this resultant effects was only because a woman chose to give. And she gave because she was full of grace. When we give from a grace position, we will generate a grace result. I pray as you listen to this broadcast that as much as I am challenged, that you will be challenged. May you grow in grace. I pray even as you're listening, may God break barrenness in your life. Some of you are barren to give. May the Lord break that in the name of the Lord. May God give you resource and seed to sow, bread to eat. May the Lord give into your hands the thing you long for. And as you posture yourself to give it back, may the Lord prosper you. You know what the Bible says? Hannah had five other sons after Samuel. She gave Samuel two as a first fruit, like Isaac was given as a first fruit. And God gave her back five others. You know what five represents? Grace. What God, what grace gives in costly, sacrificial giving, grace is able to restore more abundantly. And I pray that dynamic, that dynamic, that dimension be upon you as you listen to this teaching. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray great grace, great peace be upon you in Jesus' mighty name. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace that is able to build you up and to grant you an inheritance amongst all the saints that are sanctified. I pray you continue listening to subsequent examples along the same line of teaching. God richly bless you. Love you. Bye-bye.